Hey everyone, this is Owen. We are still on break, but looking forward to getting back to you with some new episodes in January. Here's an old favorite. This is our conversation with Marina Gorbis about universal basic assets. Hello and welcome to the Basic Income Podcast. I'm Owen Poindexter. And I'm Jim Pugh. Now, most of the times when we talk about basic income on this podcast, we really talk about it as a standalone policy. We think about what impact basic income might have on different communities, what it solves, what it doesn't, but we look at it on its own. That doesn't necessarily need to be the case, though. We could, as we're thinking about what the future might look like, imagine what could it be with basic income in addition to some other concrete policy ideas. So there are a lot of policies that do get packaged with basic income. Uh, when when various people talk about it, this can include universal health care, shared common resources and infrastructure, publicly accessible information and cultural resources. So you, once you get going, you can really start to think about what would be included with basic income. So we're really excited to be joined today by someone who really spends her time thinking about where society might be headed in the future. Marina Scorbis, uh, Executive Director of the Institute for the Future. So, Marina, thank you so much for joining us. Hi, how are you? So, what first got you interested in the basic income? So, my background, I'm an economist. I would say I'm a recovering economist. I spent a substantial amount of my career um, in development, economic development, and got sort of disenchanted, particularly doing this work overseas. Uh, But I look at a lot of kind of macroeconomic trends and uh, what's happening with technology, what's happening with work. And as you probably know, one of the biggest issues that we're facing, particularly here in the United States, but also globally, is extreme income inequality. And it's something that's been going on for several decades. And we finally reached the level of inequality where we're in the same place where we were probably about 100 years ago. We haven't seen such extreme inequality in in a long time. And it makes you wonder about what sustains a democratic society. And can you have a democratic society where you have such extreme levels of inequality? So that started me thinking about and reading, of course, and other people have been looking at that. What are the causes of that? And the, the one greatest cause of that is that when we look at economic data, and this is what Thomas Piketty and other economists have been documenting, is that basically for the past uh, several decades, returns have been going to capital rather than to wages. So basically, if you own equity, if you own um, assets such as land or particularly financial assets, you're in a much better place uh, if you are just relying on wages. And so I started thinking about uh, the concept of universal basic assets. So what, where really the focus, as I see it, and the solution to some of these, um, to some of this inequality is really focusing on helping people get more access to assets of various kinds and create various kinds of tools and mechanisms where assets are more equally distributed. Can you say a little bit more about that? Basic income on its own, you mentioned in the, in the piece you wrote that, that basic income is, is part of this framework, but only a first step. So can you just say a little bit more what do you see basic income solving and what are the things that you don't see it fixing on its own? 
I think basic income solves from many different things. One, it gives a certain kind of security and it allows, as you know, in a lot of the kind of new types of work that people are doing, where it's on demand, gig economy, however you call it, um, it's hard to predict your levels of um, income on an ongoing basis. So it smoothes, so it creates a certain kind of security. Um, it, it creates, obviously, for people who don't have access to income, it creates sort of a bottom, depending on what, you know, there are so many, as you well know, there are so many different approaches to universal basic income and particular schemes. But I, I think it's kind of solves for that. It also, what I like about it is that it disconnects um, income from work. And probably some people wouldn't like that, but it sort of um, frames income at certain level of income as a right. So it kind of solves for the security bottom uh, level of some sustainability, economic sustainability. It doesn't by itself solve for inequality. And that's why um, I've been thinking about this notion of economic um, universal basic assets. And to me, Assets can be of various kinds. Uh, one type of asset is private assets. So these are things that people own individually. It could be, you know, your car, your home, um, access to land. It, it is your income, which is could be universal basic income falls into that. So it does um, give you some level of that as a private asset. But there are other kinds of assets that people can have access to that would really improve their level, um, how they live and how sustainable they are. The example of Nordic countries that have a lot of public assets in the form of free medical insurance, uh, free medical care, free education, lots of um, access to public lands and public resources. That's another kind of asset. And if people have a lot of access to those kinds of assets, it substantially improves their well-being. So we need to start thinking about in the past, in this country, we've privatized a lot of these public assets or we have limited access to that. Um, so can we think about mechanisms for increasing people as people's access to this level of public assets. And finally, there are other kinds of assets that we call open assets. So these are things that are not really managed by governments, but they're kind of created by communities that agree on common rules of how to, who has access, how to govern those assets. But those things are things like Wikipedia, for example, where a community of people created a platform, but access to it is available to everybody. There are certain rules and principles for how it's organized, but that becomes uh, an open asset. A lot of open software is in the same space. Some people are talking about blockchain technologies um, in terms of creating these open assets. So I wanted to broaden our discussion about assets beyond money because it's not just money, money is, is important, but there are other kinds of assets that we can think about where if we improve people's levels of access to them, um, it would substantially improve their well-being. You spend a lot of time thinking about the future and what key trends are, are gonna carry from today forward. So what should we be thinking about when we try to map out the future from today? I think one of the fundamental things, are, there are two things that are happening in terms of our economy, 
which is the nature of work is changing. Um, and I don't think it's driven by a lot of technologies that we've built out over the last 30 years and continue to develop. So a lot of people look at kind of on-demand work or gig work as relating to Uber or other kinds of things. But to me, it's much beyond Uber. It's that we've, over the last 30, 40 years, developed a certain technology infrastructure that enable things like Uber, which is basically taking jobs that we thought of as uh, informal organizations, belonging in formal organizations, being nine to five or eight to five or whatever. And now we can take those jobs and split them into tasks and basically engage many people in completing these tasks and aggregating them in different ways. And the important thing there is that, as I said, we can't put these technologies in the box, back in the box. And it's not just about Uber, but it's about a lot of kinds of jobs that we've conceived as, as being in these formal organizations or belonging or only the kind of jobs that can be only done in formal organizations. Increasingly, they can be done in these new ways. And so what it disrupts, if you will, is the way we've conceived of jobs, but also how we've conceived of benefits because our social safety net, a lot of the benefits on the social safety net have been creating in 1950s when basically a lot of people work in large organizations. And so all your benefits and your whole social safety net was done through these organizations. It's not going to work like that in the future. So we will need to evolve a whole different social safety net structure and uh, move how we conceive of what are the rights to certain kinds of things as not connected to your job, but is a right because you are a citizen or you belong or you're part of this community. There was recently a project done by the Shift Commission, backed by Bloomberg and New America, where they did a scenario planning project envisioning what the future might look like. And they considered four scenarios on two different axes, one in which there is more jobs or more of a like job-based future, one more of a task-based future, another where there is more work, another where there is less work, and all the possible combinations there. Do you have predictions at this point as to which of those four possible futures you think we're headed towards? I think that what we've learned in doing scenario work is that it's not one scenario that's likely to dominate, but there are pieces of all of these scenarios that are likely to come about. So in each scenario, uh, there's some something that you will see evolve um, in reality. And I think there will be probably large organizations where people will will have jobs. What the data is showing is that there are fewer of those organizations. So we're seeing kind of uh, agglomeration. We're seeing lots of mergers and acquisitions. And so these kinds of organizations are becoming larger and we do have see people working in this. So I don't think all of the large organizations are going to go away. Now, how people work in those organizations is likely to change. So we will probably have those kinds of jobs and with benefits and everything else. But I think that that's going to be um, increasingly smaller number uh, as a proportion of the working population. At the same time, we will see and are seeing growth of these task-based kind of work. My personal view, and this is, comes from 
looking at history um, because as futurists, you're as much a historian as uh, looking into, into the future. There are certain patterns that repeat themselves. And with every generation of technology, we're seeing that actually there are new needs and new affordances that are being created. So I think there's going to be lots and lots of things for us to do. There's going to be new needs and new things that we will want to accomplish, but it's not going to be done in the same way. The other thing that's important to look at from history is that when we go through this kind of technological transformation that affects jobs, generally for many decades, we're seeing kind of wages being depressed. So um, it's jobs are, and work is being created but the compensation is much lower than what we experienced before. So, you know, auto workers used to make something like $35 an hour, and today it's about $15 or $20. So we're seeing this depression of wages, which is, again, feeding this kind of economic inequality. So you, you got into the sort of needs we're going to have going forward. Other than a universal basic income, are there basic assets that you can think of that we have a strong need for either right now or in the very near future? You know, the, the assets um, that I think are important are healthcare. That's causing a lot of economic insecurity. It's causing really um, potentially really negative just health outcome outcomes. Um, so I think as we're debating what's going to happen with ACA or AHCA, um, I, I really think we're not understanding how much it's connected to the larger economic transformation and how important it is to give people access to healthcare, to decent healthcare, and how much it should be the right and part of the new social safety net. In a similar vein, I do think education and learning is an important part of not just well-being, but having democratic society and educated citizenry and all of those things. So access to education, um, widely available, I think is another huge asset. Um, the other things that the kind of assets are cultural assets that we don't think about, you know, in our society, artists and culture creators are underpaid, undervalued, um, and it's not recognized as an asset. And yet, from all the research, we know that depending on what kind of environment you're in, whether it's vibrant, uh, infused with cultural assets and, and creations, it creates a much better environment for people to live in. It makes a difference uh, whether you're sitting in a gray building as opposed to in a, um, in a place that has a lot of uh, vibrant art and uh, creative things around you. We don't recognize that as an asset. Nature, um, again, so many studies have been done and continuously documenting the importance of having access to nature, to natural resources uh, that produce the feelings of awe and wonder and all kinds of things that have impact on people's well-being. So there are a lot of things. Here's the thing that you know, we have a market economy that basically recognizes only certain kinds of things as having monetary value. But the reality of human life is that there are a lot of other assets that are just as important to human or more important to human well-being um, that are not given monetary value. And yet they're probably 
more important to how our society functions and how we feel about the world and our place in the world. So you've described the future as being like a foreign country with a lot that we might not have any idea about or be ready to expect. Can you tell us what kind of culture shock should we be ready for? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I'm a firm believer that nobody can predict the future, including me. Um, and in many ways, um, it's a good thing because it's the future is really what we can imagine and what we can make of, of the future. You know, there are certain things that we see obviously on the horizon uh, that we don't have control over, but there are a lot of things that we can shape. So in many ways, uh, what kind of culture shock we'll experience depends on how we react to things and what we make of them and what we can imagine. Um, You know, I think what we're fighting right now, it's not so much, it's like fighting against our technologies and we're fighting against kind of the legacy systems that we've thought that, a lot of times when um, one of the difficulties in kind of imagining and thinking about the future is that we always think that our lifetime is, what we experience in our lifetime is something that is inevitable, that that's the only way to live, it's the only way to experience things, it's like given to us almost from above. And so you almost have to go sometimes into the past, into our history, and uh, because it allows you to say, hey, we didn't always live that way. And it kind of widens your imagination. So when I think about the future, I actually been reading a lot more history and kind of deep history going back uh, centuries. And some of the things that we'll need to reimagine is the idea that, the, for example, and that's just one of them, the idea that uh, wage labor is something we can't live without. And if you think about it, the whole kind of human history, the idea that we sell our time as a commodity, that it's something we put on the market and we are paid for our time, is a relatively new idea, about 200, 300 years old, right? And it doesn't mean that before that we were sitting around doing nothing. We were creating, we were producing, we were trading. We're doing all these things, but we were doing it in a different way. So I'm not saying that we'll go back to that way of living or we're going to go back to feudal society. But it tells me that we need to rethink that whole idea that wage labor is the only way for us to live. And so I think that's kind of a culture shock for a lot of people, but kind of disconnecting the idea that you can have a sustainable life. And you can be creating things and outside of the framework of wages and wage labor is something I think we'll have to rethink. Do you have thoughts on the best ways for our society to move toward universal basic assets? And is the Institute for the Future going to be doing any work on this? Yes, we have. We had a convening with a group of economists, policy people and some of the innovators in the space to come up with some basic principles of what what kind of landscape and where can we be looking at things and what needs to be done in what areas. One of the interesting things that came out of that is that if you think about our flows of capital, 
um, and where money flows today. It's increasingly going to things they're actually creating or responsible for some of that inequality. So if you think about venture capital or, or bank loans, they go to ventures that you know return um, big returns, but to relatively few people. And increasingly, these kinds of ventures don't employ a lot of people. So then you start thinking about, okay, can you create... Um, funds or encourage capital flows to initiatives or ventures that uh, ultimately create more assets for more people and that encourage that kind of access to assets and distribution of assets. So everything from things like co-ops to um, employee-owned enterprises to micro-enterprises to, for example, um, encouraging communities to buy out utilities or other kinds of um, resources that would basically give them some equity and asset ownership in, in those kinds of ventures. All right, Marina, that was all the questions we had. Thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us. Great, thank you. That was Marina Gorbis, Executive Director of the Institute for the Future. You've been listening to the Basic Income Podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in. Please subscribe on iTunes or Stitcher or the podcast service of your choice. And we'll be taking a short break for the summer for a few weeks. So uh, you can catch up on some back episodes and we'll be back in August. Thank you to our producer, Eric Davidson. And we'll see you in a few weeks. Bye.